Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle. My guest today is Dr. Barry Harvey. Dr. Harvey is a professor of theology at Baylor University. He's on the board of directors of the International Bonhoeffer Society and the author of Taking Hold of the Real, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Profound Worldliness of Christianity. Dr. Harvey, thank you so much for joining me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, been looking forward to this for a while. I mean, I kind of mentioned it off air for a little bit, but um, Steve Besner was our first guest on this podcast. And he's <laughs> he gave me a list probably three or four years ago when I was looking into studying Bonhoeffer of uh, professors to reach out to and to connect with. And you're obviously at the top of the list being his uh, dissertation advisor. <laughs> um, so I, I've, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Well, good. I'm looking forward to it as well. Usually what we do is kind of get to know you questions um, and then from there lead into Bonhoeffer questions as far as technical things about your book, that sort of thing. And then we'll have some like closing sort of application questions for people who are wondering how to apply it. So we can start with the get to know you questions. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in Bonhoeffer? Well, um, as many people did in seminary and the like, I became acquainted with Bonhoeffer and you know got a copies of discipleship and creation and fall and ethics and the like and did some reading there um then when i was in graduate school um i wrote my dissertation on bonhoeffer's good friend at union seminary right uh paul layman uh layman and bonhoeffer were exactly the same age and so they had a kind of natural friendship there and it was also layman who uh, was attempting to get Bonhoeffer uh, opportunity to stay in the United States in 1939 when he came back to New York for just a few months. Um, but I didn't really get all that involved in Bonhoeffer studies until I finished my doctorate, um, had started teaching at Baylor, and then uh, at the American Academy of Religion meetings, I just, as I describe it, got caught up in the Bonhoeffer group. Um, you know, you sit on a few things, you start talking to people, and it, it just kind of snowballed from there. And so, uh, and it developed ultimately into the kind of relationship, um, as, I, as I oftentimes will tell people when I'm teaching Bonhoeffer, um, he is the very good friend I never had the chance to meet now. And uh, along with a handful of other thinkers, um, he is always, as it were, sitting on my shoulder, uh, watching what I work, even when it's not directly connected to what he does. And so uh, he, he's, he's been that kind of influential uh, figure in my, uh, in my uh, professional development, surely. But even as much in, in uh, my own personal uh, understanding of, of the Christian faith, there is a a comment he makes in one of his prison writings in which he talks about moving from the phraseological to the real, uh, which uh, is connected with his return from overseas, uh, either from Barcelona, Spain, or uh, Rome, or from New York. I tend to think of the latter one the first time, his first return from New York, in which he became serious about what all this meant. Now, I don't think he left the phrases, the thought, the intellectual aspect behind. He certainly doesn't. Uh, one of the arguments I make is that there is a profound sense of continuity, yes, development, but continuity in Bonhoeffer's thought from beginning to end. But before going overseas, he seems to have taken the study of theology more as interesting intellectual work. Um, you know, even when he had declared to his family that he decided he was going to study theology, which they kind of were amazed at since they weren't a very pious or religious family. But after he gets back from New York, it, uh, the way I tend to think of it is that it hits him. This deals with real people, real movements, real events. And of course, what was happening in Germany at that time would only uh, increase his awareness that prayer, church, preaching, uh, Bible study, Christian community, were all uh, at the heart of the theological enterprise. 
Wow, uh, that's great. Uh, what sticks out for Bonhoeffer for you? I mean, uh, is, it, is it specifically when you're, when you're reading Lehman and you're doing your dissertation on Lehman and it leads you to Bonhoeffer and, and you, you mentioned that you're kind of uh, drawn into the International Bonhoeffer Society. Is there anything about his theology that sticks out more than others that made you uh, made you want to study him specifically? Well, um, it was more his articulation of what already resonated in me theologically. Hmm. When I was in seminary, my primary uh, teacher of theology was a Bart scholar. Uh, as a matter of fact, had um, uh, been one of the few Americans that Karl Barth allowed to take his German seminars. He did, typically didn't let Americans do his German seminars. They had to take his English seminars. Wow. And then when I was in graduate school, my Dr. Vater, as the Germans say, my dissertation advisor, uh, Frederick Herzog, had actually lived in Bart's household for a year uh, while uh, studying in Basel. And so uh, there was already a kind of theological formation at work in me. Um, but then as I, as I began to work my way more seriously through Bonhoeffer's writings, um, the way he phrases things, the way he articulates the understanding of, of Christianity to the ongoing reality of our life in this world, which is very much like Lehman, and Lehman himself, I'm sure, would have told you he was interacting with Bonhoeffer's thought as well, um, just, like I said, caught my attention and mm -hmm. persuaded me uh, as to the, the truthfulness of it. And so that's how, um, again, his influence, together with a, a, a very disparate group of other theologians, uh, people like uh, the uh, Dominican uh, Catholic theologian Herbert McCabe, uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, uh, Catherine Tanner, who teaches at Duke, excuse me, at Chicago, um, all of these people, in a certain sense, uh, are contributors, as, along with Bonhoeffer, to my ongoing professional and personal life in that regard. Definitely, yeah. Um, I'm. Uh, I, I attend Whitworth University, and uh, my advisor for my thesis um, is Dr. Adam Nieder, and uh, he's he's a Bart scholar as well. And I can attest to how helpful it is to have a Bart scholar to read Bonhoeffer with too. Mm -hmm. I was talking to him the other day about this and he said, to know Bonhoeffer well, you need to know Luther, Bart, and the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. And you also uh, need to get a familiarity with late 19th, early 20th century philosophy. Um, mm. Bonhoeffer is continually interacting with that very explicitly in his two dissertations. Sanctorum, Communio, and Act and Being. Um, those are hard to read, however. Um, uh, as I sometimes put it to my students, they're written in some of the most um, uh, dense graduate student ease, as I put it. Uh, <laughs> and so after he gets back from New York and starts teaching and writing, many of the, indeed, uh, virtually all the same ideas are at work in what he does after returning from New York in 1931. But uh, look, I, it probably a whole combination of things. Teaching, uh, you have to deliver it to people in ways they can understand it. Having worked for a year in English in America, uh, his, it's interesting, uh, Bonhoeffer's German after he returns from the United States is perhaps some of the easiest German for American students to read. He, he doesn't have these long, ponderous sentences for the most part. Uh, he's relatively concise. Uh, I think that's part of it. Um, and so to understand Bart, you have to, excuse me, Bonhoeffer, you have to understand all these factors at play. Mm -hmm. And also, interestingly enough, uh, some of the people that he is, uh, both interacting with positively and negatively. Um, uh, for example, his book, Creation and Fall, was originally a course in which he was teaching uh, uh, on the first three chapters of Genesis, but reacting to one of his fellow uh, theologians in Berlin who wanted to talk about the importance 
of German nationalism and German ethnic identity for Christian mm -hmm. ideas. And Bonhoeffer so is responding over against him. Then he's also uh, has an interesting uh, tendency to read some of the contemporary Catholic theologians of the time. Uh, he reacts at several points with Eric Shavara, uh, and then later in his life with uh, a theologian who's still read widely, and that's Joseph Pieper. And so again, the, you know, these kinds of interactions that he's having with with a variety of souls in in developing his his understanding of the Christian life. That's great. You just um, expanded my reading list by about ten people there. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you you teach at uh, at Baylor. I was wondering, do you have a favorite topic that you like to teach your college students in relation to Bonhoeffer? Is there anything that sticks out to them that you enjoy teaching, that sort of thing? Um, for the most part, uh, with Bonhoeffer, it's a matter of introducing them uh, to uh, some of the themes of his work. I've used several different books uh, to do that. If if they don't have a whole lot of uh, exposure to Bonhoeffer. I'll usually walk them through something like um, discipleship or uh, life together, which unfortunately have been characterized even by some Bonhoeffer scholars as spirituality, that is to say not real theology, which is just plain false. Bonhoeffer would never have accepted that distinction. If they're really interested in going deeper into Bonhoeffer, um, I sometimes, when, when talking about any given topic, I talk about um, three different levels. There's getting your feet wet, you know, trying something out, going deeper, which is for those who want to research, and then ultimately taking the plunge. For those who want to go deeper with Bonhoeffer, I, I encourage them to look at creation and fall because he's dealing with a whole lot of things uh, including many of the of the uh, ideas and themes from the dissertations, but in a much more accessible way, but also in uh, in uh, interaction with a lot of contemporary issues and questions that, quite frankly, are still part and parcel of us today. His understanding of technology as as shaping our our uh, understanding of the world, or rather, we should say, misshaping our understanding of the world, um, is still one that that I think deserves to be taken very seriously. Hmm. Yeah, you deal with that quite a bit in your book. Um, I was hoping that we could get to that. Uh, your book's entitled Taking Hold of the Real, The mm -hmm. Ancient Bonhoeffer and the Profound Worldliness of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, I was hoping that we could just walk through really the, the title. Um, I think Bonhoeffer has this way of saying things that contemporary Christians, uh, find, like the alarms go off when he says things like, profound worldliness where I don't know when, when I first heard that that statement I thought worldliness as in sin as in evil you know, like uh, but that's not what he's talking about at all is it no it's not so um, the phrase taking hold of the real actually comes from one of those poems that he wrote towards the end of his life in prison uh, it's interesting to see this turn to writing poetry uh, he calls the, the line comes from a poem called Stations on the Way to Freedom. Uh, the four stations being discipline, um, uh, as he says, discipli disciplining one's soul and one's senses, lest your desires and then your limbs lead you astray. The next uh, level is action. And one of the things he says there is, not always doing and daring what's random, but seeking the right thing. Linger not over what is possible, but boldly take hold of the real. He uses, it's interesting there, uh, this is one of the places where I modified the translation in um, the new Dietrich Bonhoeffer Works English Language Edition. And I must explain, tr translation is never easy and poetry is always extremely hard. But the, the verb that he uses there that uh, take hold of is in German ergreifen, which is to seize, to snatch. Um, and one of the things, one of my little battles that I have with some of my Bonhoeffer colleagues, particularly here in the United States, 
is I don't think Bonhoeffer and Reinhold Niebuhr are always uh, working the same side of the street. Hmm. So if you think, for example, of the famous serenity prayer uh, that's attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the wisdom, uh, the courage to accept, uh, change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You know, that's the idea of, of uh, you know, restricting oneself to what is possible. Um, but for him to take hold of the real, and you always have to remember, for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the real is found in Jesus Christ, in whom God has united the reality of the world and the reality of the divine together in the incarnation. Um, and so as I say to people, if you look at those who we still look to as uh, exemplars of the faith, they're not always worried about being successful or achieving what is possible. Um, uh, we're in spring break here at Baylor. Last week, I finished up with one of my classes. We've been reading some of now St. Oscar Romero's uh, pastoral letters. And for those who know about Romero's uh, murder, uh, the day before, he had basically said to the uh, warring factions, both the army and the insurgents in uh, El Salvador, I command you in the name of God, stop the repression. I don't think Romero at that point <laughs> had calculated, well, is this possible? Can I get them really to do it? <laughs> this was something he just had to say, regardless of whether or not they would hear him. And as it turns it out, he was killed the very next day, um, murdered while celebrating mass. Uh, and for me, that's a good example of someone taking hold of the real in that regard. Uh, and so, um, and you can probably start thinking of any number of people who along the way did something regardless of its the chances of possibility for success, but because it was the faithfulness uh, to Christ that, that led them to do those kinds of things. Hmm. Wow. And that kind of plays in with the, uh, the idea of this profound worldliness, mm -hmm. uh, that taking hold of the real, actually, uh, Christianity, the gospel, Jesus, actually applies to everyday life. Yeah. Uh, can you explain just the difference between, I think he calls it banal worldliness and uh, and profound worldliness? Yeah, this is a phrase he uses uh, in the letter he writes to his good friend, conservator of his heritage, uh, Eberhard Betka, the day after the failed assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler's life. So it's a very momentous letter. And in it, he talks about the difference between a banal uh, worldliness, which focuses on uh, matters of, you know, consumption, uh, selfishness, and the like, and a profound worldliness, which uh, is centered on cross and resurrection. Again, this idea of, of the crucifixion. Uh, and this, this goes very much with an emphasis he had had throughout his adult teaching life uh, in, a, in a, uh, a retreat study he gave to a group of women about a month and a half before Hitler comes to power uh, on the uh, petition in the Lord's Prayer, um, Thy Kingdom Come, he talks about there's two kinds of um, uh, ways of living that are rejections of the prayer thy kingdom come one is he says otherworldliness you know when to get away from the earth the other is wanting to take hold of the earth to, to master it and and to make sure that god had a safe place there both of those he says are rejections of the coming kingdom of god and then he says interestingly enough it's the wanderers those those nomadic figures the christians who can best love the earth as they make their way towards that city that is to come. He uh, alludes to that phrase from the book of Hebrews. Um, and so that's the importance thing. And then it's, by the way, it's very interesting. Uh, right after he talks about the difference between banal and profound thisworldliness, he says to Betka that uh, this is pretty much what he was trying to articulate in discipleship, mm -hmm. and that 
even though he understands the dangers associated with that book, he stands by it, which is, I think, um, a very important clue as to the kinds of things that Bonhoeffer is trying to talk about in the famous letters from prison that begin on April 30th, 1944, and continue for about four months after that point. That, in fact, this is an intensification of the kinds of things he's talking about in discipleship and life together, uh, and not a repudiation of it or a, or a, a, a brand new start that, that some people have posited with him. Hmm. This is, by the way, you mentioned his, his, his ability to craft phrases can also, as it were, you know, people will latch on to this or that expression uh, and, and attach it to uh, understandings that are um, alien to his overall intent. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's really helpful. I I actually had to read um, Simply Good News by N.T. Wright uh, for, for class as I was reading this book, and it was really helpful because um, both seem to have this theme, this this worldliness that um, kind of pushing against the idea that Jesus came to save your soul and take you to heaven away from earth forever, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of seeped into Christianity, but that God became a man and lived on earth and to save bodies and resurrect the dead and uh, live a new creation on earth. And that uh, that what he's up to is not to take you away from earth forever. It is to renew it. There's a phrase he uses in one of his paper, letters and papers from prison uh, in which Bonhoeffer says, the Christian hope of resurrection is different from the mythological and that it refers people to their life on earth in a wholly new way, more sharply, sharply than the Old Testament. And this is very similar to what N.T. Wright has written in his book, Surprised by Hope, when he says that in contrast to the humans that speak of Jesus' resurrection in terms of our own assurance of a safe and happy rest in heaven, Jesus' resurrection summons us to dangerous and difficult tasks on earth. And yes, I think that's at that point, they are moving in lockstep with one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really at the heart of what I think profound worldliness is for Bonhoeffer. That's great. Um, one of the other, I guess, more, most famous, at least for me, it's um, famous, could be infamous even, uh, this idea of religionless Christianity in a world come of age. Um, it seems to be a big theme in, in Bonhoeffer scholarship. Um, could you maybe explain what, what does Bonhoeffer mean? I guess religion in that sense, I mean, so it's kind of a junk drawer term uh, by many. Um, what does he mean by religion and then religionless Christianity? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, he does not mean by it what uh, uh, the popular phrase, I'm spiritual but not religious means. Yeah. Matter of fact, he would say what you're talking about being spiritual is religion 2.0, as it were. Hmm. Um, he actually deals with this topic of religion through many of his writings. This is not something that just comes out of the blue in the prison correspondence. Mm -hmm. He, um, but in the prison correspondence, first of all, he never, as as one would expect in these occasional writings that letters are, he never gives a, a technical or, a, or explicit definition of religion. But he does say several things. First of all, he does not mean the end of the, of the importance of the Christian community, of worship, of prayer, of scripture, of preaching. None of that is referred to in his conception of religion. Rather, he talks about it in terms of two things. One, um, the idea that religion has to do with inwardness and conscience. That is some kind of subjective experience. Um, and the other thing is what a, a, a technical use of metaphysics as that which lies beyond this world. In other words, what elsewhere he calls otherworldliness. Uh, and that's pretty much what he, he connects up with this idea of uh, religion um, and makes a very interesting comment at one point. He says... Uh, if I can find it very quickly, and I usually can't because that's usually when you want to try to do it. Um, the, um, the, the notion of religion as an 
he uses a technical philosophical notion here of an a priori, that which comes before anything is, is undone or done, excuse me. He says, if it becomes obvious one day that the a priori of religion doesn't exist, that it's a historically conditioned and transitory form of human expression. I think that's very perceptive on his part, that religion is not, uh, to use a problematic uh, analogy here, it's not part of the basic uh, programming of human psyche, <laughs> mm -hmm. but is a historically conditioned uh, aspect of life in which um, in the modern world, uh, the whole of reality is divided up into these discrete segments. Um, Alistair McIntyre, for example, in his most recent book, Ethics and the Conflicts of Modernity, talks about capital M morality, the notion that there's this sense of morality that's separate from politics, economics, religion, whatever have you, um, uh, and which he says elsewhere gets ultimately whittled down to matters of sex. Um, is is unheard of in the ancient or medieval worlds, or even up to the, through the Reformation. This idea that there's this dis discrete, closed-off uh, space of morality. For Bonhoeffer, he, he I think he wants to say something about religion. That Christ, as he also often says in many of his writings, is Lord of the whole world, Lord mm -hmm. of, of the cosmos. And there's no area of of life to which is restricted to. Uh, Christian faith. And so uh, so when he's talking about religion there, I think he's trying to get beyond this historically conditioned aspect, which we see in Kant, we see this in Schleimacher, we see this in Harnack. All of these elements here, I think he's, he's resisting very much. And so um, for him, uh, it's still a matter of how uh, Christians respond to these aspects of faith. Uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago Herbert McCabe, a Catholic a Dominican theologian, who says one of the reasons in the modern world that we could we divided it up and, and separated out things like morality and art and religion from the important matters of economics and politics is so they wouldn't intrude upon those kinds of things. Well, I think that's precisely the kind of, of uh, uh, sequest sequestering uh, that Bonhoeffer doesn't want to to give any credence to. Hmm. So uh, he's talking about the Christianity that is to come, um, this world come of age, um, when he's in the middle of World War II writing these letters. Uh, it's going to have to, the, the only way to be a Christian from here on out, we, we have to uh, understand this, is that Jesus is the Lord of the world, that uh, Christianity applies to all of life. He's He really is just kind of, hitting on the same, it's really interesting that you mentioned that he's, he's develops, but he's uh, very consistent. I, I mean, it sounds right along the lines of, of discipleship. It is, it is very much so. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, recent studies in Bonhoeffer by ever new uh, Bonhoeffer scholars have shown, for example, that the transition from disciple to uh, discipleship to ethics is not uh, what has often been said that, you know, uh, discipleship was a contingent uh, reaction to a particular set of circumstances, that it really wasn't, in, in for Bonhoeffer, uh, a kind of definitive or paradigmatic understanding of, of the Christian life, which, again, I think if you look at that August 21st, 1944 letter, the day after the failed assassination attempt, when he says, I stand by what I wrote in discipleship, I don't see how you can make those kinds of of claims, but that the that the themes in discipleship reappear with different emphases, other things added, and, and the like uh, amendments in ethics. And I think there's that same kind of connection between ethics and and life together. Uh, excuse me, uh, letters and papers from prison. So, hmm. so you mentioned uh, well, it, it's religionless Christianity in a world come of age. Mm. Um, that, that's a, a an interesting term in itself. I guess, uh, what is a world come of age? Are we actually in a world come of age? And uh, uh, if so, how did we get there? <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. Um, he borrows the idea of, 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 a, of a world come of age uh, uh, from Wilhelm Diltai, uh, who's actually writing about the development of science. Um, uh, and it's if you know anything about Bonhoeffer, 
he loves to borrow expressions or ideas from wherever he can, but he always gives them his own unusual twist. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I argue, and I still do, although I've not persuaded all kinds of people, that I think ultimately he wants world come of age or the best way to read world come of age is in an ironic fashion. For example, in one of the last things he sends from prison is outline for a book. And the first chapter would be on this idea of a world come of age. And he talks about it as uh, a world uh, that uh, has uh, you know, shoved it all to the middle of the table, as it were, on, the, on technology uh, of controlling reality. And he says the problem is uh, humanity has been thrown back upon itself, which, interestingly enough, is an expression out of creation and fall. Uh, and it can't, and it has to deal with itself, and it can't deal with itself. Well, that, that's, to me, that's a fascinating way of thinking about a world come of age, that in a certain sense, it is but the latest um, um, uh, uh, iteration, if you will, of a fallen world. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. In a certain sense, a world come of age doesn't look much different from, I think it was W.H. Auden who talked about the age of anxiety. Uh, that we are just as anxious, if not more anxious, than our desire to control reality through our technological reasoning still has left us in the predicament where we have to depend upon ourselves and we can't. Hmm. Wow. How did we get there, you think? Well, I guess that's a question. <laughs> well, it, it is. He actually does a little bit of genealogical uh, commentary in some of these letters, not nearly enough. Uh, mm -hmm. If we want to talk about how we get there, um, I mean, this has been uh, a topic that several very important people have written on. John Milbank's theology and social theory, um, perhaps most recently Charles Taylor, A Secular Age. I think also you have to read uh, someone like Willie Jennings, Christian Imagination, on the racial and colonial aspects of it. Um, and so it's it's not one thing. It, at no time was it inevitable, uh, but, uh, you know, it just it, things kept converging and interacting with one another. You have um, a, uh, what Charles Taylor calls a neo-Stoicism that emerges late 16th, 17th century. Um, and so when Bonhoeffer, for example, quotes Hugo Grotius, uh, 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 that nature can be known even if there is no God, that's one contribution from, the, from this Dutch Reformed thinker mm. um, uh, who's espousing this neo-Reformed element here. Um, you have contributions from English authors, from German and the like. And so, you know, in a certain sense, there are some people who would like, ah, the problem's here. You know, they, they did it wrong. Well, no. Different aspects contributed to it. Bonhoeffer was willing, and you almost hear him groan at this, to say Luther himself contributes to it. Mm -hmm. You know, that what Luther wanted and what... Uh, came out of his ideas were almost diametrically opposite. And so he, sa he says with Soren Kierkegaard, if Luther could see what had happened to his ideas, he would have said the opposite thing. Hmm. Um, and, you know, like you said, <laughs> he loves him, his Luther. Yeah. He, he, at several points, says that, that it, it contributed to reality that Luther and the others never anticipated. Wow. I just had a, a lecture this past weekend. I'm taking a class called Christianity and Culture, and we were talking about modernism and postmodernism and the explanation that my professor gave, which was so helpful. And it was really helpful to kind of think about you, your book and uh, like chapter three specifically in your book is about this idea of how we uh, became a, a world come of age. Uh, and she uh, referred to, my professor referred to uh, Descartes and saying, I think therefore I am and saying uh, when modernity took over, the thinking I, the I that understands reality therefore exists, can now be objectified. So we can come outside of ourselves, examine ourselves, and that's not something that really happened 
until kind of the the enlightenment and uh, and Luther, uh, you can you can examine or uh, I can't remember exactly who you quoted about uh, examining nature without God and, and learning uh, through that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it was kind of like a helpful uh, commentary on. Yeah, and, and we can't just blame Descartes. Sure. Uh, uh, Descartes actually thought as part of, uh, his philosophy was part of a larger, essentially Christian understanding of reality. Um, uh, and yet, um, one book that I like to teach is a book by Walker Percy uh, called Love in the Ruins. And he said the philosopher Descartes uh, ripped the mind free from the body and turned the soul into a ghost that haunts its own house. Uh, <laughs> wow, what a phrase. Well, that may be a bit of a caricature, but it's, it, it, you know, there, there's elements to it, and it only becomes more and more emphasized. And, and uh, as the self becomes more and more abstracted from its embodied, uh, uh, localized uh, placement as well. And so, uh, and this is another thing that I think attracts a lot of people, Bonhoeffer, it's his willingness to engage his concrete uh situation concrete setting and yet not in a way that makes it determinative ultimately of his thought but rather he engages it with a very profound integrity theological integrity if you read his sermons for example and there's actually two volumes of his sermons out there by fortress press if you're interested um he rarely talks about current events Mm-hmm. But you, if you're at all aware of them, you know they're in the background. But he uses them as backdrop to try to pronounce what is our best understanding of Christian faith in, in our time. Uh, and so, for example, one of the critiques he has of American Protestantism, what he calls Protestantism without Reformation, is its lack of a confessional interest in the truth. And by confessional interest, he does not mean, you know, Anglicans against Presbyterians, against Methodists, against Baptists, but rather what in our particular time uh, is the place where our Christian confession is most at stake and most in danger. Um, But to to do that, one can't automatically recreate a kind of confessional stance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And once you've lost it, it's very hard to recreate, which is one of the things I mentioned in in the book that he tried to do in a few years what it takes generations to to develop and to cultivate in terms of a Christian community that understands why the struggle with truth in a confessional way is so important. Hmm. Wow. That's really great. Um, I, I have a friend that asked me recently, uh, what is this phrase, the world come of age. And after reading your book, kind of the explanation that I was like, in layman terms, when I, when I first read a world come of age, I thought we finally arrived. We're where we needed to be kind of thing. That's kind of what it sounds like, which it sounds like he's saying that tongue in cheek. Um, but the real the example I give him is he's kind of saying that society is, re- is ready to move out of its parents' house. Like that, that's how society is viewing itself. Um, that we we finally made it. How Christianity is going to have to be lived out in a society that thinks that they've made it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, uh, the specific term he uses, mundigkeit, um, uh, maturity, actually means, for the most part in German, you are now of age. Hmm. Doesn't mean you're you're mentally, emotionally, spiritually mature. Yeah. It just means you know I'm going to live life on my own, and that's. Yeah. Part of what I think is a uh, uh, an ultimately an ironic phrase, or should be, best be read as an ironic phrase, because in fact, all of the same problems are 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 there. Um, hmm. It just you know it's it's not any different at that point. And you get into this uh, this concept of the polyphony of life. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not musically inclined whatsoever, <laughs> uh, but uh, from my understanding, you are you are, and uh, and Bonhoeffer was, and he, he uses this phrase to relate to what it's going to look like to live out this Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bonhoeffer was, among many things, uh, uh, a very uh, talented person, 
sometimes I'll say to my students, for those of you guys who were in high school, this is the guy you hated. <laughs> he was so good at everything. He was good looking. He was great at athletics. He was very musical. As a matter of fact, he considered for a while becoming a professional pianist. Um, uh, obviously, his, his intellectual efforts are important. Um, and so particularly in the latter portion of his life, he really starts using musical ideas and images and compositions to articulate theological points. Polyphony is a, is a, is a type of music in which there are multiple voices um, and the lines are uh, not in lockstep with one another, as you would, for example, in, in uh, what's called homophony, when everyone is singing, they may be singing different notes, but they're singing on the same uh, rhythm and harm. Uh, you can hear this uh, in, for example, Haydn's uh, Hallelujah Chorus, where we have one line will start and another line will pick up and another line will pick up. And they're constantly interweaving at different points in the phrase, but it's always harmonizing. That's polyphony. Hmm. Polyphony has um, uh, what is typically called a cantus firmus, literally in Latin, a firm song. <laughs> that is the uh, the basic uh, melodic and harmonic uh, theme that polyphony is wound around. And so he uses the idea to talk about the polyphony of life, that our love for God, um, which we have and which comes to us in Jesus Christ, is this firm song around which all the other voices in life um, uh, harmonize, uh, hmm. not always well. Uh, there can be dissonance, there can be there, and there always is tension as well. Um, and so he, he talks about it specifically in terms initially of the love between a man and a woman, uh, it, it, uh, the cantus firmus, the firm song, Christ in this regard gives it a basis around which it, it can develop properly. He later on uh, develops it in connection with um, uh, being in prison, um, uh, being in a world in which is fragmenting, uh, and still having a basis on which to see everything in relationship. And what I do in my book is I take it and I extend it even further to talk about the understanding of the church as itself ordered around. Um, the firm song of Christ, but both within its within its uh, internal life, but also with the voices outside. Uh, and so there there are times when you can see in the world uh, things happening that do harmonize with Christ. Um, other times there's profound dissonance and resistance is what's called for. Um, and so I I find it to be a very suggestive phrase. So suggestive, as a matter of fact. My next book project is working on what I'm calling Musica Dei, the work, the music of God, and Bonhoeffer will be an important part of it. Oh wow, that sounds really interesting. Um, any any timeline for when that comes out? No, um, uh, I have a book coming out either late this year or next year, which deals with some of these themes. But the music book is still about three years down the road, I would suspect. Oh wow, cool. Well, I can't wait wait to read it. Um, the the most helpful thing about the polyphony of life chapter for me was that you started out with the Middle Earth creation story in the Silmarillion. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. I'm a I'm a major Lord of the Rings uh, nerd, I guess. So that that interlude of Lugatar and Melkor and all of that playing into the relation to uh, Bonhoeffer's polyphony of life, it, it really really stuck because uh, I'm really into that. So it's it's really interesting. The way I read uh, Tolkien at that point is he's he's reworking a kind of Miltonian emphasis there, in which the the creator god Iluvatar sings the world into existence. The Anur, which are the angelic beings, um, add their songs from which a world comes about. Uh, and anyone who understands the book of Genesis, particularly chapter one, understands what's going on there. But then Melkor, who is uh, very much a Miltonian figure like Satan, the most powerful of these angelic Anur, uh, decides he wants to sing his own songs and do his own thing uh, in, in a kind of rebellious. And ultimately, Iluvatar reveals to them that there, 
there is nothing that Melkor or, or any of the other angelic beings can sing that doesn't have, find its origin in, or origination in his song, hmm. but also uh, that ultimately will be reharmonized by Iluvatar's song. In other words, there's there is the uh, kind of implicit providential understanding that's articulated there in uh, musical terms, hmm. uh, in in a way that does not deny the integrity of, of a creature's actions, and yet ultimately its um, final significance rests with God. That's so good. Um, I got one more, I have a application question and then sort of a fun question, then we'll wrap up. On your, your profile on Baylor, says that you're a Baptist minister. I was wondering, how has Bonhoeffer shaped your ministry, Do you would you say? Um, it's very much like my teaching. Um, um, I'm very Christological in terms of ministry, uh, very uh, emphasis on the eschatological dimension of, of Christian life, um, uh, the focus on Christian community, uh, not for its own sake. Indeed, one of the emphases I give is that the church is called to be a foretaste and an instrument and sign of the world to come. But for it to do that, it has to have its own integrity and self-understanding, uh, as opposed to an understanding of the church that sees its primary responsibility in, and I'm going to use a slightly pejorative way of putting it, but I think there's some sense to it. Instead of thinking that it's up to the Christian community to make the world come out right, mm -hmm. which won't happen in the first place. Um, uh, that truly is a fool's errand to, to undertake that. Um, but there is a responsibility we have to the world, but it has to grow out of a genuine Christian community and understanding of, of what that calls the virtues and the like. Uh, and Bonhoeffer, by the way, um, uh, does have a, a conception of virtues. He doesn't emphasize it as much as, say, Stanley Harawas would, but it's still there. Uh, this idea of formation uh, is is so crucial for him, and so yeah, that's um, you know in my preaching and my teaching, all of that um, uh, is still very much front and center. Hmm. That's great. Um, so the last question we do this every episode. It's sort of just a fun way to get some book recommendations. The idea is that you're stuck on a desert island and you get one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer that is obviously not by Bonhoeffer, but it could be about his life, his theology, anything like that. Uh, what two books are you going with? Well, that's hard because um, one thing that Bonhoeffer did not have was the luxury of the, the leisure to write a kind of whole systematic account of his thinking, mm -hmm. um, which is why if you're reading different things of his, you can get a you know, included in a kind of different framework. Um, if I had to just take um, one book of Bonhoeffer's, it would probably be Ethics, um, which interestingly enough is not itself a book. It's in a book form, you know, and that's when you buy it, you know, $39.95 or whatever it costs. Um, it's, it's actually a series of drafts that he ultimately hoped to put into a book form. Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, there was still a lot of work that remained to be done, and he himself recognized that. So I would take that. As far as books about Bonhoeffer, um, I think one of the most helpful is one of the, one of the most recent books uh, that has come out uh, by a New Zealand scholar. Uh, he's actually Australian, I think, but lives in New Zealand. Michael Mawson, M-A-W-S-O-N, Christ Existing as Community which is a very uh, profound reading of his dissertation, Bonhoeffer's dissertation, and I think uh, can shed a lot of light on um, and, and correct a lot of misunderstandings, I think, of Bonhoeffer's uh, overall theological uh, work by understanding that, that many of the basic notions are already there in Sanctorum Communio. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I've that's on the reading list as well. <laughs> I've been looking at that one for a while, so it, it's good to hear that that it's so good. I'm I'm excited to read it. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for for joining me today. Really, it, it's a pleasure and an honor, and uh, I really enjoyed learning from you. Um, is there anything that 
you would like to plug, I guess, uh, your books or if anyone wants to reach out to you or anything like that? Well, you can easily find me on Baylor's website, baylor.edu. Um, uh, always interested in people who want to come study at Baylor. Always interested in communicating with them whether or not they want to study here. Um, um, always willing to make recommendations and the like. And and as I said, um, you know, Bonhoeffer is someone. It's fascinating. Um, his interest uh, in his life and work has really never waned. And if anything, it's continually growing. Mm -hmm. uh, I account for that by the fact that he's a, a unique combination of having a first-class theological mind and then living such a fascinating life. Mm -hmm. And the two of them together are is, is what keeps us coming back to Bonhoeffer. Uh, I always point out to people um, in, here at Baylor that we're 97% sure that Bonhoeffer was here in Waco for a brief time because he and his French friend uh, Jean Lasser made a trip, uh, a spring break trip through the southern part of the United States down to Mexico. And we're pretty sure he came through Waco because he sent a postcard to a friend of his in Connecticut of Cameron Park, which is the second largest municipal park in the country. And it's here in Waco. And, you know, back in 1931, the only place where you got a postcard of something was from that place, you know, right. it would have been on his route anyway. So um, just, you know, the, his travels, his experience, his interaction, his attempts uh, during the war to, to find rapprochement between the allies and the German resistance, which was a failure. Um, um, the way I always put it when I talk about Bonhoeffer, he can't speak for us. He's not an oracle. We have to do our own work. Mm -hmm. But he has much to teach us as we uh, seek to do our own work and to speak uh, what we understand to be the truth of the Christian confession in our place, in our time. Wow. That's a great note to end on. Well, thank you so much again. Um, and yeah, uh, whenever your books come out, would love to have you on again to help promote those, those sorts of things. But uh, yeah, this has been great. So thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. And thank you to Dr. Harvey for coming on. He was very generous with his time, very informative, very wise. And uh, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, if you're enjoying these podcasts, feel free to leave a review on iTunes or share with someone that you know that may be interested in learning more about Bonhoeffer. I've really enjoyed these episodes so far. Uh, the guest list is quickly racking up, which is just crazy for me. But I'm so excited about the future and being able to have conversations with these Bonhoeffer scholars who are willing to take the time to, to have these conversations and, and provide a platform for Bonhoeffer scholarship. This is just such a blessing. So uh, I hope that you've all been enjoying this and I'm really happy that you um, you listeners get to be on this journey with me as we learn more about Bonhoeffer. And hopefully we'll be back uh, sometime next month with uh, another episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks for listening.